Father, thank you so much for, for introducing Psalm 42 to us last week. And in so doing, we are now into the second book of Psalms. So we've been in the uh, Psalms in the summer for, this is our fourth summer now. And so when we began, Pastor Lewis briefly shared with us that the book of Psalms, as we have them today, organized into 150 Psalms, is not how Israel always had access to those Psalms. Originally, they, were, they existed in many different, many different books, and those have been put together for us today as the 150 Psalms that we have. And there's a few clues, if you're going through the book of Psalms, there's a few clues that show us that these weren't originally together. First of all, there's some duplicates. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are essentially the same Psalm. The difference would be the way that the word God is translated. The first book of Psalms overwhelmingly uses the, the term Yahweh that's translated in your Bibles today as Lord in all caps. But the second book of Psalms that begins in 42 and goes through 72 overwhelmingly uses Elohim, which is translated God rather than Lord in all caps. And so when you look at 14 and 53 side by side, you'll notice they're identical except for that language of Yahweh in Psalm 14 and Elohim in Psalm 53. Those are just a couple of many examples that show us that the books as we have them today, as they were probably put together somewhere after the return of Israel from exile, is not how they always existed. So now we're into book two of the Psalms, and we are connecting uh, Psalm 42 and 43 together because that is the way that God's word reveals them to us. Last week, Brother Frankie said um, he was going to leave some things to me, those things that have to do with some, some musical or poetic um, attributes of the Psalms. This is actually a great opportunity for a little hymnology lesson. So last week, Brother Frankie shared with us a psalm that had two stanzas, each of the two stanzas being followed by the same refrain. Today in our psalm, we see what you would probably call a third stanza, and then the repetition of that same refrain from, uh, from Psalm 42. If you're familiar with terms in hymnology, there's a few different, few different words we use. One is stanza. So as we sing through a hymn, for example, praise to the Lord the Almighty, it has four stanzas. What it's missing is a refrain. There's no common, sometimes in modern culture we call that a chorus, but this refrain that helps summarize or communicate some thread that we see throughout the entire song as a whole. And that's what we have here in Psalm 43 and 42. Also another term that we sometimes use is the word verse. Sometimes we confuse the word verse with the word stanza. Really what we mean when we say verse most of the time is stanza. So for example, praise to the Lord the Almighty doesn't have four verses. It has four stanzas, each stanza being made up of many verses. A verse is one line of poetry within a stanza. So just FYI for you, when you hear the term stanza, you'll know what we're talking about. And so what we have in Psalms 42 and 43 are one song in, with three stanzas and one shared refrain after each stanza. Now it is fitting that there would be a separation between Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, because in Psalm 42, as Brother Frankie shared with us last week, we have the theme of lament. But then in 43, that lament shifts to a theme of prayer. And then what we see is within this third stanza, we see 
1 through 4 being that prayer, and in verse 5, the refrain being the psalmist's response following that prayer. I want to read for us together Psalm 43 before we start looking at it in detail. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let us pray together. Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We're thankful for the example of faithfulness the psalmist shows us as he seeks you in prayer, as he relies upon you as his refuge, as he, as he shows a determination to be in the presence of God and to worship you. Lord, as we study this psalm today, let the truths of it penetrate our hearts, that we might be changed, that we might be sanctified in your truth. Lord, lead us through your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we see in the structure, I've already shared with you a little bit, that verses 1 through 4 of this psalm are the psalmist's prayer. In that verse 5 is the refrain to that prayer. In a little bit more detail, what we can see in the first three verses is a petition. The psalmist petitions God. And then in verse 4, we see a vow, a vow on the, on the psalmist's behalf. And then finally, in the refrain, verse 5, we see a self-exhortation. So flowing out of Psalm 42, the psalmist turns from lament to prayer as he petitions God for vindication and deliverance so that he might worship God in the sanctuary in God's presence. Then the psalmist vows to praise God upon entering the place of worship. And lastly, the psalmist repeats the refrain of hope in God. After we look at this psalm together, I want us to walk away with this truth. Committed followers of Christ long to gather with the people of God and praise him for his saving work. Committed followers of Christ long to gather with the people of God and praise him for his saving work. And if you allow me just one last time, I want to make sure if you're writing that down, you're able to get it all. Committed followers of Christ. That's us in this room. Long to gather with the people of God. Again, that's us in this room. And praise him for his saving work. As we turn our attention to the psalm, look at verse 1 with me. So you heard me mention earlier that in this case, the psalmist is turning his attention from lament to prayer. One of the reasons we know that is because of the three imperative verbs right here in Psalm uh, 43, verse 1. Listen to them. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. 
What's interesting here in verse one, what helps us also understand this transition, in Psalm 42, there are no imperatives except for one. And the one imperative is in the refrain where he says to himself, the psalmist is giving himself a self-exhortation, hope in God. The only imperative we see in the previous psalm was one directed at himself. But now in Psalm 43, he turns his attention from just stating matters of fact and in self-exhorting himself to now speaking to God and asking God to vindicate him, defend him, and deliver him. Think about these three imperatives and, and what they could mean. So in the word vindicate, vindicate me, O God, he's asking God to judge him. Not in the way that we sometimes see in the Psalms where the psalmist might say, judge me, O God, for I am guilty, or I'm a sinner, I'm an unclean man. Not in that instance, but here he's saying, judge me in the way of vindication. And in other words, the psalmist is stating his innocence. And then he says, defend my cause. Defend my cause. I want to use um, an analogy for a second. Think about a courtroom. When you go in a courtroom, you, got, you have many roles in there. You have the defendant. In this case, you might say the psalmist is the defendant, the one who is needing representation, hence his words of defend my cause. And so in a courtroom, you'd have an attorney who would defend the cause of the defendant. Likewise, you would have a judge who is, who is sitting up and kind of ruling over the case at hand. And he's the one who would either, would either give this declaration of guilty or not guilty. In other words, vindicate that person or sentence that person. Also within the room, you have many police officers. You have a bailiff who kind of helps keep order in the room. You have officers who at the end of the trial, once a judgment has been given, that officer is going to either lead the defendant away in handcuffs because he's been found guilty, or he'll release that defendant from his bonds because of his vindication. And so think about these terms in light of this psalm. Here, the psalmist is asking God to vindicate him, defend him, and deliver him. In other words, all of these roles that we see within a courtroom, the psalmist understands that in life, God is a person in the place of these roles. It is God's role to vindicate us, to judge us. It is God's role to be our attorney, to defend us. It is his role to either sentence us guilty and keep us in captivity of our bonds or release us from those bonds. And so the psalmist says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. What exactly is going on in the psalmist's life? We don't know exactly who this is. We can tell from context that it's, it's either a king or someone who had a, Levitically, a Levitical priestly role within the temple because he talks about leading the people in worship within the temple. So we don't know exactly who it is. We don't know exactly the situation, but we do know that what's happening to him is oppression that's keeping him from being able to be in the presence of God in the sanctuary. And this, when the psalmist says, from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. He wants to be delivered from his oppression and delivered to worship in the presence of God. This deliverance here at the end is, is signifying that if he is truly defended because he believes himself to be innocent, and in, the, in God rules with a determination of vindication, in other words, not guilty, he knows that the outcome of that will be his deliverance. It's interesting here. Turn to the next verse with me. So he, he gives this prayer to God, but then he states his own case in the very next verse. 
In the next case, you might say he's giving his personal defense, his own personal testimony, perhaps. Here he says in verse 2, for you are the God. In other words, this word for tells us that what has just been said, he is arguing that because of what is to follow. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why, have, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So it's interesting here when we read this verse, we should not read, for you are the God in whom I take refuge as any kind of hopeful statement. It's not, oh, but all that's going to be just fine because I have trust in you. Now that would be a, a, right, a right thought to have. It's just not the thought that he's communicating here. He's making his case. Why should you vindicate me and defend me and deliver me? Because you are the God in whom I take refuge. Think about what that statement is saying. Is it saying, because I am a king of Israel, because I am a priest who leads in the temple of God, because I have accomplished many great things in life, because I am just a wonderful, righteous person, are any of those the psalmist's defense? No, his defense is in God. You are my refuge. He has found refuge in God, which means it is not his own ability, his own work, or anything he can bring before the court for vindication. It is solely that God is his refuge, and in him he has placed his faith. This verse here in 53.2 is very similar to 42.9. Look back a few verses at that with me. 42.9. What does the psalmist say here? He says, I say to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Very similar to what we have here in 43.2. What's one difference? Well, in 43.2, he says that God is his refuge. 42.9 helps us further understand the idea of God as refuge as he calls God his rock. Is there anything greater to place refuge in, confidence in, reliance upon than something that is rock? Rock signifies something that is solid, that cannot be moved, that is ever faithful. And here the psalmist is saying, my defense is not myself, but it is in the rock who is my refuge. His case for vindication is rooted not in himself, but in faith, in what God has accomplished and who God is. And throughout this verse, he maintains this idea of he's still uncertain why he's experiencing what he is, what he's going through. Following his statement of faith, he says, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. He's interpreting his current situation as God rejecting him. Because he knows he is innocent before God. He knows that he is he has the benefit of God as his rock and refuge because of his, because of his faith, because of his faith in him. And so here he asks the question, why? Why? We think about our own lives for a second. It's, it's not uncommon for us to go through various trials in life and ask why. We've placed as the as the as faithful followers of Christ, as, as the church of God. We have placed our faith in him. It's in, often we, we approach trials with this idea of why. And it's a fine response for us to have. If, if, if the psalmist is sharing these expressions 
of grief and contrition over what he's going through, certainly we too would, would find it acceptable to do so. And so perhaps you've been in situations where you were thinking that God is just not present with me because of what I'm going through. I want to pose to you a different situation. Think about the lost person who stands in judgment of God. Perhaps this lost person is in a similar situation. He's in a courtroom. He has a defender, an attorney, who has a really difficult job ahead of himself, an impossible, an impossible job. He stands before a holy God, and here his sure judgment is going to be guilty. What might this person say in response to that judgment? Can he say, for you are the God in whom I take refuge? No. But it very well may be that he walks away with a question of why. Unknowing that it was his, that faith in Christ could have prevented his current situation. And so when we think about it in that context, in that context, our reliance upon God is infinitely important. Listen to this, listen to how the psalmist understands his situation. Not as one who has rejected God, not as one who has no faith, but one who has placed his faith in God. When he says, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? He expresses his response to the oppression of the enemy. He, he is literally consumed by darkness. He's not where he wants to be. In the presence of God in the temple, worshiping with the people of God, he's in darkness. As he mourns, what he reflects on is darkness in his own life, and his own heart. And because of that, he offers this second petition. So, so far he is, he's offered one, a first petition to God that he would be defended, vindicated, and delivered. And then he states his case before God. And then he offers a second petition following out of that case in verse three. He says to God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Just as we had three imperatives in verse one, here in verse three, again, we have three imperatives. Send, let, and let. What do you, what do you notice about these imperatives in light of, of what the psalmist has expressed so far? Again, he is communicating his reliance upon God. In his prayer to God, which is reliance and, and faith in and of itself, he's also saying, but God, continue, continue to be my refuge by sending your light and your truth, letting them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling, and before that, and letting them lead me. He seeks to be led by God's truth and light, which only comes from God. It's not in anything else. He didn't say, hey, God, let me have some special light and truth of my own self, but he says, send your light and truth. Let them lead, lead me. And let them bring me. He is relying upon what only God can provide here in verse three. Think about these words, light and truth, for a moment. Light oftentimes in the scriptures signifies salvation. Think about the psalmist's current circumstance. He's in darkness. He's in mourning. 
He's grieving. We see that even all the way back to the beginning of Psalm 42, this deep lament that the psalmist finds himself in. And so what can, what can deliver him from this darkness? Remember, deliver was one of his first imperatives, his first prayers to God. What can deliver him? Nothing but the light that God can provide. And so the psalmist requests that God send him salvation, send him deliverance through his own light. But then look at the next word, send your light and your... Thank you. It was information on the word light, by the way. Did y'all hear that? Sorry about that. Let's do this. I keep pushing that button on the side. So here we have a second word, the word truth. Send your light and your truth. For us today, it's really clear what this truth is. This is nothing else but the word of God. Even for the psalmist, as he considers what is the truth of God, it is God's word. For him, it would be the Torah. It would be other revealed parts of scripture, perhaps those that haven't even been written down yet, but still the revealed word of God. Because it's only in God's truth can right, just, right justice, right vindication, right judgment be given to the psalmist. I want, to consider, I want us to consider for a moment these two words, light and truth, in our own lives. When we think of light and truth, I hope that your immediate response, uh, your immediate reaction to those two terms is the overwhelming amount of times that the New Testament refers to Christ as our light in truth. I want to encourage you to turn to John 1 for a moment. John is filled with statements where, where the uh, gospel writer repeatedly states that Jesus is light and truth. As you're turning to John 1, I just want to reference Matthew for a second. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, the gospel writer argues, quoting Isaiah, that this, the people dwelling in darkness have seen what? A great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Why is Matthew quoting Isaiah? Because he's about to reveal that this light has been fulfilled in Christ. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have you made your way to John now? Let's start at the very beginning. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do we so far know who the writer is talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's establishing Jesus' divinity before those who would be reading this gospel book. And so he says this in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the what? Light of men. The light shines in the darkness. It's amazing, this, 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 this difference of terms here, light, darkness. We see it in the psalm. We see it here. We see it throughout the, old, throughout the New Testament. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to, wear, to, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, John that is, 
but came to bear witness about the light, the true light. Notice the word true. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. You could very well say the world was in darkness. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is our light and truth. And when we think on the psalmist's words, words here of God, send your light and your truth, that has been fulfilled in our lives through God sending his Son. Jesus is that light and that truth that guides us out of darkness, overcomes our mourning, overcomes the oppression of our own sin in our lives, and allows us to be in the presence of God. I want to point out two more passages in John before we move on. John 12, 46. Jesus echoes the sentiment of John 1 here in John 12, 46, and he says, I have come into the world as light. Why? He says, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then John 14, 6, a verse many of you have probably committed to memory. Jesus again said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the gospel writer tells us that Jesus is truth and light Jesus himself tells us he is truth, tells us he is light. And really, anytime we read from the word of God, it is Jesus telling us because this is indeed the word of God. And so as we read through the books of scripture, it takes us not long to understand in our own lives, when we seek light and truth, we need but to turn to Christ. I'm reminded of a well-known passage, uh, a well-known statement by John Piper. He says that missions exists because worship doesn't. And this shows us the great motivation that we have for God sending light and truth. The psalmist echoes this this statement as well. Here in verse 3, he says, Let them bring me to your holy hill. We're back in Psalm 43, verse 3. The second half of that verse, he says, let them bring me to your holy hill. Where does he wish to be? He wishes to be in the presence of God, worshiping God among his people. And he says, and to your dwelling. Because when the church gathers, when the people of God gather together, that is the most real presence of God that we will experience here on earth until one day we have a future hope. And so thinking about that chief motivation that drives the psalmist, why does he want deliverance? Why does he want to be led by the light and truth? So that he might be able to worship God. Think about the statement again that John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. I think a lot of us might think that missions and evangelism all exist so that we can keep people from going to hell and getting them into heaven so they can be really happy for eternity. That's a reality. That's definitely true. 
That's a massive benefit of the gospel of Christ in our lives. But it is not God's chief motivation for salvation. His chief motivation for salvation is that we would worship him. For what does God seek? He seeks worshipers who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And so thinking on John Piper's statement, missions exist because worship doesn't. We share, we evangelize, we engage in missions so that others would be transformed into worshipers of God. And praise God, they have the benefit of heaven and eternal life on the new, the new heavens and the new earth one day. And so the psalmist has this pure desire to worship God. And this concludes the, the psalmist's petition. Flowing out of this, he turns himself to a vow or a, a promise before God. Listen to what he says here in verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So notice some of the language in this verse. Let's see how confident you think the psalmist is that God will answer his petition. He says, Then I will go. Later, he says, And I will praise. Would you say that the psalmist? has a great confidence in that God will respond to his prayer and indeed provide him with deliverance that would lead him to worship God in the sanctuary? Yes, absolutely. But notice where the psalmist vows to go. I will go to the altar of God. What is the altar of God at this time? The altar of God at this time was a place within the temple where the people would go and offer sacrifices that they might have their sins removed from them, placed elsewhere. That way they would be seen as clean before God and able to worship him. And then he says, I will praise you with a lyre. Their response to that sanctifying, cleansing work in their lives is to respond to God in praise. Think about this phrase, altar, for a moment. It's a place of sacrifice. Sacrifice is what enables our worship for us today. What sacrifice is it that enables our worship? It is Jesus who said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. So the sacrifice that enables our worship today is the sacrifice of our eternal and living Lord, Jesus Christ. Folks, I'd argue with you today that these stairs on the front of the platform that we often refer to as altar are no altar at all. The altar, the work of the altar has been completed. It is finished. It was the cross upon which, upon which Jesus died and gave his life. And upon that cross, that altar, we have an eternal fulfilled hope that we can come into the presence of God Jesus himself is mediating that presence for us. Listen to the confidence that we can have because of Christ's redeeming work. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, not assurance of works, assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is our refuge. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. In other words, this is the context of God's people gathered together for worship. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more, this is a great statement of hope for us, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have this great confidence that the psalmist expresses in these verses. But in in a real way, our confidence is even greater. Or at least it ought to be greater. The confidence you have in your heart to be able to meet with God and worship Him through Christ is a much greater and fulfilled confidence than the psalmist even had. Yes, yes, his redeeming, the redeeming work that took place in his life was indeed through faith, even faith in Christ, even if he didn't know the full realities of that yet. Just as we see throughout the New Testament, Abraham had faith and therefore was considered justified. But yes, we can have this great confidence that we see in Hebrews. And then it leads to the final verse of the psalm, the refrain, this great self-exhortation following his prayer to God that he would indeed hope in God. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my help. You hear that word salvation there at the end? It's our salvation in Christ that allows us to have the same hopeful comment that we shall again praise him. But it's interesting here. It says, I shall again praise him. When we think about those phrases, can we think of that in the present or in the future? I'd argue it's both. I want to draw your attention to to something that we see throughout both Psalms, 42 and 43. So we have this common refrain that I just read to you here, verse 5 of 43. We see it also in verse uh, 6 of 42 and 11 of 42. The words are identical. They're the same all three times. But I would argue uh, with you this morning that though the words are the same, the tone and the meaning are slightly different. And what helps us understand the tone and the meaning and the meaning of this, this verse? As always when we read scripture, we read it within a context. What's the context right before this verse? He says in verse four again, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. This hopeful statement that precedes the refrain makes this refrain just a bit sweeter. Look at the difference in the verses that precede the refrains in Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse four. This is the verse right before the refrain. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And then he goes into that refrain. 
What time period is he speaking of in his own life? He's thinking of the past. This is how it was. And knowing that his current situation is not that, it causes him to lament. And so why are you cast down, O my soul, is not quite as sweet as it could be. Look at the next verse that precedes your refrain. This is verse 10 of Psalm 42. So in 42.4, he was remembering the past. In 42.10, let's see what's happening now. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's moved from remembering his past to reflecting on his current circumstance. Now it's the present. He's going from past to present. In a lot of ways, that present situation makes the, makes the lament of the refrain just a little bit less sweet. But then consider the last refrain in the verse that precedes it. Then I will go to the altar. I will praise you with the lyre. No longer is he thinking on the past or thinking on his current situation. Now he's thinking ahead to the future. And that hope of the future is what makes this final refrain in this psalm of 42 and 43 combined so much sweeter. As an example, in music, uh, we can sing the same words, we can even sing the same melody, and that which surrounds those words and melody can transform the meaning of what we sing. I want to argue with you this morning that our, in our, even in our music, that, that the music itself has meaning. It's not just the words that give music the meaning. Music has meaning even apart from words. Think about how you might respond to someone when they ask you, how are you? You could say, fine. Or you could say, fine. Those two words, sorry, that one word, in two different contexts has a different meaning. And so that's what's happening here is this lament, this refrain progresses through. We could sing, what are three words from this last verse? Why are you cast down, O my soul? We could sing, O my soul. We could sing that. Three words, same notes. O my soul. We could sing it like this. We could go, O my soul. That communicates one thing, right? What about this? Same words, same melody. Oh, my soul. Would you interpret those as, as having the same meaning? No, no, no. The second one, I think, is a little bit sweeter. The first one is like the refrain in 42 of this, this contrition that's within, within his heart, this lament. And then in that second one, he had hopefulness. That's what the psalmist is doing here as he concludes his song. It's a much sweeter refrain with the promise, with the assurance, the confidence of knowing that God will respond. For us, it's not a matter of will God respond. It's a matter of acknowledging that God has responded. Think for a moment in the same way that we reflected on the psalmist's past, present, and future. Think for a moment on our own past, present, and future. What is our past? Our past is lost. Our past is separated from God because of our sin. Do you think that should follow with lament? I would think so. What's our present situation? 
Well, depending who you are in this room, I think the most of us as faithful followers of Christ who long to worship God, I would say that our present situation is saved. God has saved us through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. And he was buried and he was raised on the third day. And it is in that great gospel truth that we find our hope and have any assurance that we can indeed praise God in his sanctuary here this morning. But think about our future. Well, hold on. Let's not think about our future for a second. Let's think about the person in this room whose present situation has not yet resulted in trust in Christ. You should have, if you've not trusted in Christ's work on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, if you've not placed your faith there, if you've not found that he is your rock and your refuge, then you should not have the confidence of the Hebrew passage we read earlier. You should not have the confidence of the psalmist as he says that God is his rock and refuge, one whom he will worship. No. And if that's you, I encourage you, hear the gospel. This psalm is rich with the implications of the gospel, as we've already spoken of this morning. Hear the gospel. Trust in it that you might find eternal life. Yes, because of the benefit to you, but even greater so that you might be a worshiper of God. But then think about our future. Church, those who have placed your faith in God, what is our future hope? As As sweet as it is to gather on Sunday with the people of God here on earth and to worship him, how much sweeter it will be for us when we gather together in the new heavens and the new earth, having been resurrected and given new bodies and worshiping God in a much more real and present way. I want to encourage you this morning as you reflect in your own lives and the truths of the scripture and how they might transform your heart to yes, have a longing in the week to week to worship God and knowing that it's been accomplished for you through Christ. Have that longing week to week, but let it always be undergirded by the great hope and longing that we have in this eternity, eternity where we will worship God forever. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are thankful that you have redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have given us eternal life, and that you have made us worshipers of you. Lord, we pray that you would stir up in our hearts this same commitment to longing and to faithfulness that the psalmist expressed. Lord, he was obviously one who was faithful. Hence the reason we say that it's committed followers of Christ who long to gather. Not fringe followers, not apathetic followers. An argument can be made that those are followers at all, but Lord, we say that those who are committed should long to gather with your people and worship you. Lord, we ask that you would send your light and truth that is Christ, send the truth of that gospel message into our hearts and illuminate for us this great desire. What a wonderful thing you've accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you would use it to stir in our hearts and affection for you, that our longing would grow, and then our worship as a result would grow. Lord, and we're thankful for all this. It's because of your saving work, just as the psalmist said, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation 
and my God, just as he proclaims it was his, you are his salvation, we proclaim that God, you are our salvation. This serves God as the fuel that enables us to worship you. And we are thankful. Church, this morning I want to ask that you just reflect quietly for a moment in your own life over a few questions. Is your week filled with this longing to gather with God's people? Are you acknowledging that this longing is a result of not your work or who you are, but the efforts that Christ has put forth in the cross of Christ? Is this where you're hoping? And as you hope there, is this creating a longing for you to worship God? Acknowledging that worship isn't uh, first and foremost in our own homes apart from the church, but, uh, but first and foremost gathered with the church and then an extension into our lives. Do you have this same, this same desire to gather with God's people week in and week out? You can even ask yourself the question, when I miss a Sunday, how does it affect me? Perhaps you could ask yourself, when I missed worship for a year, Last year, how did it affect me? I hope the answers to both those questions are revealing to you this morning as you reflect on your own life. In just a moment, we're going to respond in singing. This is our primary way that we respond to the preaching of God's word. And then there'll be several other things in our service as well. But as we stand to sing... I'll be available down front if anyone would like to speak about what it means uh, to know this salvation, what it means to trust in God through Christ. I'll be available. Your neighbor is also available, for this room is filled with faithful followers of Christ. Or if you'd like to speak about membership, I'm available. If you are um, not plugged into a local body, but are indeed a faithful follower of Christ, and, and perhaps you've Acknowledge that Woodlawn is a place where you uh, could see yourself being active and involved, for it is the command of God to be plugged into the life of the body of Christ. I'd be glad to speak, you, speak with you about joining this body as well. Or lastly, if there's a, a need that's weighing upon your heart for which you would like prayer, I too would be glad to speak with you about this. Father, we are thankful for you and who you are what you've accomplished for us through Christ, that you might draw us near to you, that we would worship you in spirit and truth. Continue to grow this desire in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.